Hi, everyone. I'm Blake Bartlett, and I'm a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in software companies and help them grow faster. This season on the Build podcast, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with operators to hear firsthand how they've put their product at the center of user acquisition, conversion, and expansion. Now, on with the show. Today's episode is a deep dive into data-driven marketing. How attributable is every ad dollar you spend? Why are so many SaaS companies doing TV and billboard ads? What can you, as a SaaS marketer, learn from the makers of proactive acne treatments and P90X fitness programs? If you've ever had any of these questions, you're in luck because today's guest is Jeff Weiser, CMO of Shopify. Jeff shares his unique perspective on B2B marketing based on his background in data science, infomercials, and social gaming. And stay tuned at the end of the episode to hear Jeff's take on the most famous marketing quote of all time. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us here on the Build Podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, we're going to get into all things marketing and Shopify and product-led growth and you name it. But before we do that, we'd love to get some background on yourself for the benefit of our audience. So how did you become a marketer? Sure. So, you know, the thing I always tell people is that there's sort of a tendency to want to tell your narrative in a very linear fashion where you did X so that you could later do Y. And it was all with a view to do Z at the end. And I have a much less linear path than that. I sort of refer to myself as an accidental CMO in the sense that for many years I ran strategy and analytics departments. So I did quant work, everything from really simple marketing analysis, dashboarding, to financial analysis, budgeting, FP&A, up through things that now have much fancier names like data science and big data. And as you probably know, over the last 10, 15 years, marketing became a much more quantitative discipline, driven, I think, largely by the move of dollars to online channels that were more easily quantified. As that was happening, marketers started coming more and more to my quant departments, asking questions like, hey, I've got $100 million in budget to spend. What's the optimal way to divvy it up? Or I'm running a CRM department and I'd love to have analytically derived segments. Can you help? And so we'd say, sure, the quant team will take a look. We're happy to see what we can do. And as the marketers worked closely with us and got good results, the line between marketing and analytics blended more and more until I was asked to run a marketing department on my own. The first one was a CRM department at a company called Beachbody. We doubled the revenue in CRM in the first two years. And so the founders were like, oh, that was pretty good. Why don't you try managing our digital acquisition spend? So in in that way, I sort of eroded the line between what was analytics and what was marketing over a period of years, but was still kind of surprised to find myself in the CMO seat just because I thought of myself first and foremost as an analyst. I suppose that will be more of a trend in the future, but I think it's still a little bit of an unusual career path from data science and quant into the CMO seat at this point. So Beachbody is not a B2B SaaS company, correct? There would be an awfully unusual name for a B2B SaaS company, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what is that experience? I mean, what is Beachbody and how did that experience uniquely equip you, I guess, to be running marketing now at a B2B SaaS company like Shopify? A couple things. One is that Beachbody is an incredible company. It's one of the best experiences I've ever had professionally, and it continues to be a great company. I joined Beachbody in Santa Monica, California in 2010. At the time, the company was probably doing around $350-400 million in two main channels, direct response TV and multi-level marketing. 
And it was active in the health and wellness space, selling exercise DVDs and meal replacement shakes mostly. Over the next five and a half years from 2010 till mid 2016, we grew revenue from about 350, 400 million to 1.3 billion. So it was a really, really good run. And Beachbody did it really by being very disciplined at looking at the numbers and understanding marketing through the perspective of analytics. I think that's always been the case for direct response companies, but Beachbody really had a reputation for being the gold standard for analytics-driven direct response marketing. So Beachbody is where I cut my teeth. It's an incredible business. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the founders of the company and the folks who are still there who taught me everything I know. And that's really what Beachbody is. And now I would place Beachbody into a category of company called direct marketing company. You know, Guthy Ranker is the name that comes to mind to me that's one of the paragons and the leaders in the direct marketing category. But direct marketing as a company or as a category of business or Guthy Ranker as a name, I know them to be incredibly influential, but the average person might not have heard of that name before. So what can you tell us about that whole movement and how influential that has been on marketing as we know it today? Direct response marketing is sort of the unsung hero of modern day direct to consumer marketing. So there's been a lot of press over the last several years about the disintermediation of the relationship with the end customer where companies like a Bonobos or a Dollar Shave Club cut out the middleman, reach the consumer directly, and by having that direct relationship are able to take a lot of the expense of the middleman out of the equation and provide a better experience at a lower cost. Those businesses really have their roots and their origins in what used to be called direct response marketing, which was really pioneered by Guthy Ranker. And I would argue... Beachbody. There's actually a significant amount of overlap there. The founders of Beachbody had spent some time at Guthy before splitting off to do their health and wellness company. So it was sort of always the case that if you were at Guthy or you were at Beachbody and you had been sort of magically lifted and deposited in the other company, you would know, for example, how all their models worked. The companies were thought to be so similar. But I've done a lot of thinking about what's the difference between what we call direct-to-consumer now and what we used to call direct response. And I think it's really the hybridization of direct response with brand marketing. So companies like Guthy and Beachbody were always very much on the up and up. But because of the obsession with increasing customer lifetime values, so you could then increase your acquisition cost targets and remain in a viable profit margin, there were a lot of shady players in direct response who would do everything they could to slip one more subscription billing past the customer, spend another $10 on acquisition, and now we can buy that much more media that performs to our profitability standard. That was sort of the game they played. I think people realized over time that that was kind of a short game. And the direct-to-consumer brands have understood the mathematics of direct response marketing and the important relationship between lifetime value acquisition cost and marketing spend, but if coupled with a superior customer experience that really is more drawn from the world of brand marketing. And so it's sort of that hybridization based on the math of DR and the experience of brand that's led to this direct-to-consumer revolution that Shopify really powers. And so for me, on the one hand, it seems like an odd arc to have gone from a direct response company like Beachbody to what you refer to as a B2B SaaS company with Shopify. But on the other hand, Shopify's customers are the very direct response trained marketers who are now pioneering direct to consumer. And so being able to put yourself in the merchant's mindset by having been in that same marketing game is pivotal to what we do here. 
Exactly. And maybe just to make it a little bit more real and tangible for listeners, Guthy Ranker, while that might be a name that's less familiar to folks, one of their products is probably less vague and unfamiliar, and that would be proactive. For a period of time there, it was incredibly hard to turn on the TV or mainstream media channels and not hear an infomercial for proactive acne solutions, right? Guthy Ranker is the company behind that, but they don't view themselves as a consumer products company. They view themselves really as just a marketing company, a direct marketing business before anybody else was talking about customer lifetime value and customer acquisition cost and making sure these unit economics work. Companies like that knew it to a T. And in some of the most complicated, difficult to attribute channels like infomercials and cable TV and all of these kinds of things. And so a lot of the things that we view as being sophisticated new ideas in growth marketing or whatever it may be today in 2019, actually decades ago was being pioneered by some of these companies. So I see the loop perfectly. And that's kind of why we took the detour down it. But I had not thought about that connection towards really a lot of the Shopify customers today are the folks who are carrying that that torch from what direct marketing companies and direct response-based businesses did back in the 90s and the early 2000s. So it's really an interesting full circle story there. So that's great. Thanks for that clarification. It always was important to the direct response marketers not to go to market as the corporate entity, but to be more of a house of brands where a proactive or a P90X was really the hero product. And part of that was just the longevity of infomercial marketing, meaning that there was some benefit in having proactive be a hit for a period of time or having P90X be a hit infomercial for a period of time and then being able to say, oh, now there's something new out there called insanity or whatever it is that Guthy did next. But there was sort of a trend benefit in going to market as a house of brands. And so that's why those entities, despite being massive businesses, were less well-known. And now shifting gears a bit into Shopify. So there have been many e-commerce platforms built over the years, but in my view, and I think the data shows this, Shopify is clearly the most successful. So why do you think Shopify won ultimately? I think it's a pretty simple phenomenon, which is that Shopify did a fantastic job of making something very complex, incredibly simple. So if you're a merchant of a small business, you have to deal with everything from inventory management to store management if you have a retail location to processing payments to shipping to being present in any sales channel your customers might be in. That's a lot of work to do. Shopify is truly a retail operating system that takes that complexity out of the system so merchants can focus on selling independently and directly to their customers. And that really was the innovation for Shopify. And then with that, how has Shopify's target customer evolved over time? Where did it begin? And then where is it today? You know, we talked a little bit before the podcast began about product-led growth. I think the evolution of Shopify's platform is a great example of that. So, you know, there was a time when Shopify was essentially e-commerce checkout software Over the years, Shopify added broader and broader functionality, things like payments. So today, we have hundreds of payment gateways and checkout methods. Shipping. We have pre-negotiated rates with leading carriers like the United States Postal Service, Canada Post, FedEx, UPS, etc. The ability to sell outside your online store in social channels like Instagram and Facebook, various marketplaces like Amazon and eBay. You know, I won't belabor all the different solutions we offer, but essentially as the product broadened, the range of entrepreneurs that we could service with it also broadened. And so some of the key milestones I would put out there would be the launch of Shopify Plus in 2014. We saw that some of our small and medium businesses were having so much success 
that they were graduating to a new set of enterprise needs beyond what the platform offered. And so we launched Shopify Plus. In 2017, we addressed a new segment with our acquisition of Oberlo, which targets drop shippers, folks who want to merchandise products but may not be in the manufacturing space themselves. Basically, as the product broadened, our solution became more holistic, and that enabled us to go after a broader and broader range of businesses. So as the audience has broadened to be able to serve more and more types of businesses, and as the capabilities have broadened, how has that evolved Shopify's messaging over time and how you guys speak to this customer base? Great question. The messaging, as we became more of a holistic solution, evolved into talking about it as more of a single product and less as a set of discrete functionalities. So today, the message that works best for us and that we really just sort of locked in in the last year is that Shopify is everything you need to start, sell, market, and manage your business. A single platform that has everything you need. If your platform is more piecemeal, it's harder to sell that total solution. And so as the product broadened, the breadth itself became the message. That makes sense. And so that's a bit of how does Shopify talk about the capabilities and what you can do with Shopify. So I view that as an element of product marketing in a way. But I think the other side of that coin is not so much just what can I do with the product and what are the capabilities and how do you message that, but also how does that tie into the brand and the overall brand message, the overall brand feel of a company. So how would you describe Shopify's brand? We're in the business of business. So we think of ourselves as a true business partner to independent business owners. We say that we take the complex and make it simple. We make the important things easy and everything else possible. There's a range in what we need to do that's worth keeping in mind. So on the one hand, we require the trust of a bank. At the end of the day, we're going to be processing payments for you. But we need to behave like a Nike in the sense that entrepreneurship is hard and requires a lot of motivation. So that's one way to think about the various notes we try to hit in our brand marketing. And jumping into some more specifics about the state of marketing today and continuing the conversation that we had had about where we see direct-to-consumer relative to direct response in the past, I have historically thought about marketers really kind of operating in two primary areas. There's brand marketing and there's direct response. Are those still the sort of relevant categories to think about today? Or with the advent of things like growth marketing or conversational marketing or other sort of buzzwords today, are we entering into a new era? It's a great question. I definitely used to have the view, as you say, that you had these discrete categories of brand marketing and direct response marketing. Over time, I've come to see it as more of a spectrum for a couple of reasons. One was the evolution of the direct-to-consumer brand, which, as we discussed earlier, uses the best of both worlds, the math of a direct response and the experience of a brand marketing operation. But the other is sort of this rise of growth marketing, which to me is working the best when it's creating something that's more than the sum of the parts. So it used to be that you, know, you spend $1 in marketing investment, maybe you get $2 in return. You say, okay, that's a viable ratio, and you ramp up your your marketing spend as long as that equation holds. That's great, but at the end of the day, it's still linear. And so what growth marketers who were really successful did is they figured out 
how to change the equation from one plus one is two to something like one plus one squares itself and becomes four. And so, you know, as we think about product-led marketing, one flavor of it is the viral marketing mechanics that we've seen in a lot of the fastest growing products. I was fortunate to spend a bunch of time in the 2008-2009 timeframe working in social gaming during the rise of Zynga and social gaming networks and some of the others. And that's really the way they thought about game mechanics was how do you create viral loops that are more than a linear relationship to business productivity? That's come to the forefront around the same time that direct-to-consumer marketing started to blend direct response and brand. I think the other thing that's led to the blending of these categories is that people are starting to realize some of the limitations of measurement and attribution. So there was some thinking that if we just did enough math, eventually we'd be able to reduce everything to direct response marketing, meaning, sure, we have separate categories for these things, but but even when we spend on our brand, we do so because it will ultimately provide a halo that leads us to either acquire more customers or retain the ones we've got longer, and we'll eventually just be able to model all of that. I think people are realizing that there's no silver bullet modeling solution for attribution and the effective brand marketing on direct response metrics. And that's leading to a blurrier line where people attempt to do some level of quantifying their marketing, but are also happy to settle for improvement and not a global solve for their marketing dollars and their effect. And that's also led to a blending of these two categories. Got it. In pulling the thread a bit on brand marketing and the convergence that we're seeing, I've historically thought about more often than not, brand marketing is associated with more traditional channels like radio, TV, out of home. Clearly, there are some folks like we were talking about earlier in the conversation who turn those into direct response channels. But by and large, you know, radio, TV, out of home, that's been the realm of brand. But it's been interesting to see how B2B folks and SaaS companies have started to do a lot more with radio, TV, and out of home. Is this something that you've pursued at Shopify? And what do you think about the future for some of these channels as it pertains to B2B? Great question. We are starting to think about that a lot more aggressively at Shopify. We used some non-digital channels in the past. We were always very heavy on experiential marketing. But as you talk about radio, TV, out of home, etc., we will be moving in that direction. Part of how I think about the shift towards digital spending was that it was sort of an overswing of a pendulum. So folks became very invested in having their marketing dollars become measurable. And eventually the pendulum swung so far that people were effectively paying a measure premium, meaning they'd be willing to pay more than the advertising was actually worth simply for the ability to say they knew what it was doing. At a certain time, the amount that you're willing to spend solely to say that you can measure something becomes counterproductive. And again, that's where I say that I see people moving back towards less measurable offline traditional channels across all types of businesses and all forms of advertising because they'd rather have the better return in an uncertain and imperfectly measurable world than a perfectly measurable outcome in a world that's less productive from a marketing perspective. And so again, I think that's where some of the limitations of measurement have led people to to move back towards traditional methods. That makes sense. Now, talking about another aspect of B2B and especially in product-led growth, you know, I wanted to dive into word of mouth. So I know that Shopify, certainly in its earliest days and then still today, benefits a lot from word of mouth and sort of merchants telling other merchants either online or offline and that driving traffic to you guys and ultimately conversions to you guys. But I do view word of mouth as something that's kind of a black box. 
and marketers themselves struggle often to influence it. So do you have any practical examples or advice for marketers who are looking to create or amplify or harness the power of word of mouth in their business? Word of mouth is a very difficult thing to intentionally create. Part of the way I think about word of mouth is that it's effectively a conversation that other people are having. And I'm often shocked by the extent to which brands are not participating in their own conversation. So you might talk to some you know, extreme direct response type marketers who say, oh, we don't do brand marketing. And my reaction is always like, whether you participate in it or not, people are talking about your brand. And so step A number one to me in terms of fomenting word of mouth marketing is participate in the conversation that's happening about you anyway, right? In terms of reaching the escape velocity where your marketing sort of does itself because everyone's telling each other about it, there's a couple different ways. One is sort of, you know, what I described in the social gaming context of creating viral mechanics that produce a reliable incentive for people to pass on the information. The other is much more straightforward, which is essentially building a product that's so damn good People have to talk about it. I don't take credit for this because it predates my tenure by a good amount, but I think that's where Shopify was incredibly successful. It was once the case that if you wanted to sell things online, just to take the most simple use case for what we did, you needed to hire a bunch of engineers. And Shopify built a tool that made it simple for anyone to be an entrepreneur. And when people have success doing that, they're going to tell other people. And so in that sense, word of mouth was product-led, but not in the sense of creating some complicated in-product viral mechanic. It was simply by building a better product for an under-addressed but large market segment. And I want to talk about how, regardless of where a lead comes from, whether it's from paid media or word of mouth, as we just heard you describe, once a lead gets in the funnel, how the funnel sort of then works and operates from there and the right way to conceptualize the funnel. And so I've thought about the traditional B2B marketing funnel and still what most companies rely on, especially in a sales or a marketing-led world, is thinking about going from marketing qualified leads, MQLs, those then get sent over to sales development reps who do some further qualification. They then become sales qualified leads or SQLs. They then go over to the AEs or the reps. And as soon as they're accepted, then they become sales accepted leads and they continue on down the funnel to eventually, you hope, becoming closed one opportunities. So that's the traditional funnel. But in a world of product-led growth where some leads do go through sales, I can certainly imagine that's the case for you guys with Shopify Plus leads. But many also just go through a self-service channel and funnel and ultimately convert on their own. How do you think about your funnel? Is it still this kind of MQL, SQL, SAL world? Or is there a different way to conceptualize it given you know some of the things we're seeing with product-led growth? I'll start with a little bit of a detour, which is that any attempt to take a complex process like convincing someone to adopt and use your product and have success with it is never going to be as simple as MQL, SQL, SAL, and it's just in a straight line. And that was actually one of the things that I struggled with the most 
when I went from being a quant to being a marketer. In the world of analytics, you can build a perfect data model and everything ticks and ties perfectly and it's all neat and orderly. When I became a marketer, one of my first realizations is that, hey, the real world is a lot messier than that. So I sort of start with the presumption that it's never the case that an incredibly linear model like MQL leads to SQL leads to SAL really applies. It's just the real world's messier than that. But you're absolutely right that it's no longer the case that enterprise sales has to be the only entity selling a B2B SaaS product. The error usually lies in treating the customer base as monolithic. And what you really need to do is segment a market by a couple different factors. One could be something like the customer's likely lifetime value. So is this customer even lucrative enough to justify the expense of throwing sales rep time and labor at it? If not, then there's no profitability there and certainly nothing left over for attracting the MQL in the first instance through your marketing spend. The other is something like conversion propensity. So the B2B companies I've spent time at do a lot of work to take the data that comes in with the merchant or the prospective merchant, in some cases combine it with third-party data where that makes sense, and then score those customers on conversion propensity. Now, the naive way to think about something like that is, well, we'll just take the people who are most likely to convert and address them first. It's actually often the case that taking the second or third decile of conversion propensity, the 20 or 30 percentile who sort of is open to buying your product but not already sold on it, is the most effective use of a sales team's time because the most qualified customers were going to convert anyway. And so it's all a way of saying that if you look at the likely lifetime value of customers coming in, as well as their propensity to adopt the product anyway, that can help inform a decision as to whether or not you direct that lead into a sales funnel or allow the product to do the heavy lifting. But you need to be pretty rigorous about understanding in real time who the customer is or who the lead is, I should say, and putting them in the right funnel. And then, of course, even once they're in either your sort of product conversion funnel or your sales conversion funnel, it's never as linear as A leads to B leads to C. The process of people making decisions is complex. Businesses have many decision makers in a lot of cases. And so it's just never quite that simple. And continuing on the theme of what the funnel looks like, in a product-led growth model, I do find that there's some unique things that happen when you have a dynamic where the product itself is driving so much revenue or is at least responsible for leads at the top of the funnel. You start to get into this world of, okay, well, who owns the number, right? In a traditional model, it's pretty clear who owns the number. It's most typically the CRO or a combination of the VP sales, VP marketing, something like that. But in a product-led world, is it the chief product officer? Is it marketing? Is it sales? Is it some sort of shared responsibility across everybody on the team? Who owns growth? Who owns the number? Who owns the funnel? Great question. The best way I've seen to address that ambiguity is through org structure. I've been in a variety of different org charts. And I've really come to believe over time that the one that works best for product-led companies, which most tech companies ultimately are, is to have a matrixed environment where you call them business units, call them product lines, call them whatever you will, where you have one axis of products. We are making things and they have a consumer target. Then on the other axis, you have services for those products. And marketing is usually treated as a service. Is it a service the way HR is a service or legal is a service? Not exactly, but ultimately it is a support role in a product-led environment and marketers need to be comfortable with that. So having formed a matrix of products 
and support functions that include marketing. The way I've solved for this is by putting a product marketer in every product line with a dotted line into the general manager of that product line. So to put a fine point on it, at Shopify, one of the org changes I brought with me was that we have nine product lines, and in each of them, I embedded a product marketer who reports into centralized product marketing. That's really important because if you chunk your product up into nine different parts and you message them completely independently without a tie back to a centralized function, you could accidentally ship your org chart. And what I mean by that is you don't go to market as one product, you go to market as nine, which is not how the customer experiences it. So you do need that tie back to centralized marketing. But I also have a product marketer embedded in every product line who is tied to the hip with a product manager. And I like to give the product marketer and product manager joint ownership over a set of numbers that they agree they're going to hit together. Some people will object to that model and say, well, you really need a single owner of things. If you don't, then accountability becomes awfully diffuse and you know who gets the credit and who gets the blame and therefore you should only give people targets that they can solely achieve on their own. I don't necessarily agree with that. I've tended to do very well in practice. You know, Maybe it's wrong on paper by saying that a product marketer in combination with a product manager has shared responsibility for the commercial exploitation of what gets built. That makes sense. It definitely does foot with how I see the go-to-market organizations operating in a product-led growth world. I see it as product leads, sales follows, and marketing supports throughout the entirety of that customer journey. And so it definitely dovetails to what you had said about marketing being in this supporting role or as sort of a shared service offering almost, if you will, across the entirety of the product line and the product org. One thing you said that I had not heard of before and I think is incredibly insightful is this concept of having a product marketer in each business line that has both the connection to the GM of that product area or that business line, as well as a tie back up into centralized product marketing just to ensure that there's consistency because as you had mentioned, the customer experiences it as a single product, not as nine separate products. I really like the way you visualize sales and products with marketing supporting throughout One thing I would add in the vein of product marketing is that one of the ways that I visualize the relationship between a product marketer who's dotted line into a product org and who's straight line into a centralized marketing org is that if you imagine the two different axes in a matrixed organization, they function as the hinge. And so when I explain the org chart to people, I typically depict product marketing as a literal hinge between two different axes, one of which is product and one of which is support services, including marketing. My final question to you is going to be about the very, very famous John Wanamaker quote that says that half my advertising is wasted, I just don't know which half, right? That's from the 1800s. It's something that everybody references back to, and it's great. But I've constantly been thinking, are we at a place where this is no longer relevant? With the state of data, with the state of attribution, with the state of event data, user analytics, all of the rest in the suites of products that are available to folks today, are we past this state of wasting half of your marketing dollars or advertising dollars, but not being able to say which half? Now, earlier in the conversation, you were talking about some of this exactly, and that we're actually getting to a point where folks are starting to embrace the fact that you can't measure and attribute every single dollar and every single action. So I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that and what that means for how folks should be viewing analytics and data in general today and what you can answer and you can't answer as a marketer today. 
It's funny because there's a way in which I'm an awfully unusual messenger for the idea that there are limitations of what you can do in marketing analytics, given that I came out of analytics into marketing and the rationale for it was that we'd make more of it measurable, which we did. But the reality is that we've learned over the last several years that attribution is something you improve at. It's not something you quote unquote solve. And so maybe if it was once true that half your marketing dollars were wasted, maybe we're approaching a third or a fourth or something smaller. But we have to be comfortable understanding that environments change. Things that are exogenous to your business change. The competitive environment changes. The process of human decision-making and buying things is complex. And we'll never be able to perfectly model where exactly a sale came from. And so the thing I encourage people to do is to get comfortable with that messiness. I can't tell you how often I see people stay on an attribution scheme that they know definitively to be wrong just because it's neat and tidy. So companies that are on a last click model, but have six average touch points in the path to purchase, they know for sure that five touch points are getting zero credit 100% of the time. But in the sense of there being a one-to-one relationship where every order goes to one and only one media event, the last click is orderly and tidy, and so they stick with it. And what I advise people to do is... Try out different attribution schemes. I happen to like algorithmic ones that are inferred using statistics, not based on a set of rules. But try out a bunch of different ones. And it's pretty easy to test attribution in the sense that you can only rob Peter to pay Paul for so long. And what I mean by that is that let's say an order comes from search, but you incorrectly determine that it came from social media. Well, the very next thing you would do would be to spend up in your budget on social media, and then those incremental orders would fail to materialize. So it's a pretty easy thing to test into the future. And so I encourage people to play around with it and see what in practice works best for your business. But it will always mean that there's some error rate and some messiness and that what worked last week might not work exactly the same next week. And people need to get comfortable with that dynamic, semi-chaotic environment. But as long as people are looking for the perfect solve, they'll stay on the things that are neat and tidy and that they know are wrong, which is kind of crazy to me. Well, that's a great ending note to marketers to embrace the messiness and know that you'll never have a perfectly attributable answer. So Jeff, this is great. A ton of wisdom in this conversation today. So really thank you for taking the time and sharing it with us. Thanks so much. It was great to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you won't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. And you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do this by going to openviewpartners.com newsletter. See you next time.